Lord, I am a sinful man and imperfect. I pray, Lord, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, so fill me with your word that as I open my mouth and speak, it may come to each of us here, including to me, as your very word that comes with life-changing power. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A quick review from the last time I was here, and we two weeks ago we looked at the church at Pergamon, and I mentioned the means of grace. I mentioned the means of grace. I think it's important for a quick second to look at John chapter 5 and verse 39. John chapter 5 and verse 39. Because means of grace is such an abstract Concept, isn't it? Means of grace. It's kind of like you think of it in terms of, did I take my vitamins today? And uh, you think of it as, did I get a good breakfast? And if you don't get enough, uh, you're going to need more later on. We think of means of grace that way, but I want to show you that's not what it is. John chapter 5, and look at verse 39 with me for a moment. Jesus says on page 1655, he says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think, you imagine that, th- that by them you possess eternal life. Think about it for a moment. He's saying, You think that this, the Bible, gives you eternal life. Now, Jesus is not putting the Bible down or disparaging it. Jesus is going to tell us something. And he says in the next sentence, These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I want to say this about the Bible. I believe that the Bible is God's infallible, inerrant word. I believe that it contains everything that we need to know to measure truth by. And what do I mean by that? What about when you turn on your TV? Do you need to measure truth there? Of course. And you probably won't find a lot. But it's also important for you to look in the Bible when preachers preach. You need to test what the preacher's saying by the written Word of God. But I want to tell you, the Bible lacks the power to change your life. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can change your life. And there are many people who take the Bible. They may put it in a purse. They may put it on their dashboard. But it is no different than a magic charm around the neck. Because the Bible will do you no good unless through the Bible you come in a regular way to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has life, not the book. The book is a means to that end, just like the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means to commune with the Lord with the Lord Jesus Christ. The bread and the wine by themselves have no power. They're just crackers and juice. But if you use the Lord's Supper to come to Jesus during that time and have real dealings with Him, you get real life. So that's important as we turn back to Revelation chapter 2. Now we notice something. This is the church in Thyatira on, page, on verse 18, page 1915. And that reminds us to make another left turn back to the book of 
Acts for a moment. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to learn something about Thyatira. Acts chapter 16. You remember how the Holy Spirit would not allow the Apostle Paul to go into the rest of Asia? The Spirit of Christ hindered him. And then he had a dream. And God spoke to him through the dream. He saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And then they knew that through that dream, God was calling them to go uh, to Macedonia. And so there on page 1728, 1721 rather, 1721, they left Troas, that's old Troy, and they put out to sea. And then look on verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where he expected to find a place of prayer. What is he talking about? Well, the Jewish people of the diaspora, that is those who had remained away from the Holy Land, always would worship. In many cities, they had synagogues, but not everywhere. If they didn't have a synagogue, he knew that on the Sabbath day, that is the Jewish Sabbath, they would gather to worship the Lord. And so he finds there, they go to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Very often, men are like Mr. Goldfinch at the First Berderian Church of Wington. Religion is for women, they think. But I'll tell you this. Unless a man is the spiritual head of his home, he is not the head of his home. And that's a very basic truth. But notice, all of these Jewish people and converts to Judaism, uh, they've gathered together. And it's just women, apparently. And so then notice in verse 14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Now let's think about that for a moment. Many Gentiles were drawn to Judaism because Judaism taught them one God, and it taught them to worship that God in spirit and in truth, and it taught them to turn aside from immorality. Remember the Greeks, the Greek gods were made in the image of human beings. And they were just like wicked politicians. <laughs> and what they did, I mean, Zeus is an awful fellow, always committing adultery and doing this, and his wife is trying to catch him. I mean, those were the Greek gods. So people who began to think in the ancient world said, there's got to be something better than this. And they began to seek the Lord. Some people went all the way over and actually converted to Judaism. And that required the man to become circumcised. But many people are what we were called, we would call God-fearers, a worshiper of God. That's what Lydia was. And notice that Lydia is a wealthy woman. Notice that Lydia has her own home and has a lot of things you'll see later on if you read the story. Because she was what? She was a merchant. And notice where she's from. She's from Thyatira. And she is a worshiper of God, but not having converted to Judaism. And then we notice something else. 
And it says there in the second sentence of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's why when our little boy who was going to be named Abraham Kuyper in uh, February of 1971 decided to be a girl (laughs) who's sitting here today, We named her Lydia. Why did we name her Lydia? No one in our families was named Lydia. We named her Lydia based on this verse, whose heart the Lord opened to respond to Paul's message. And that's the important thing. The success of a parent or a grandparent is to see that the Lord opens their children's heart. And I want to say on Father's Day, you can be the world's best father and be an utter and total failure unless the Lord sovereignly opens the hearts of your children. And how does the Lord do that? I'll say this, the Lord does that by prayer. The greatest thing you can do as a father is to pray to God, is to pray to God, is to beg God, Lord, do for my children what I can't do for them myself. Open their hearts. So the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she responded uh, to the message. And then you notice verse 15. When she and the members of her household uh, were baptized, she invited us to her home. Notice that this was a woman with a lot of money. She had a whole household right there in Philippi. And why was she rich? And the answer is... She was from Thyatira. And that takes us back to Revelation chapter 2, uh, top of the page, uh, Revelation 2, 18, page 1915, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? Now, this is what you got to see. Look down at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, my guess is that this woman was not actually literally named Jezebel. Do any of you know personally any woman named Jezebel? Have you ever met a child whose father or mother named her Jezebel? And you could say, well, maybe they didn't know about it. Well, Jezebel's reputation was really bad, and it was widespread, uh, particularly uh, among the Jews, who lived throughout the Roman Empire after Alexander the Great uh, conquered the Persian Empire. So I think, and I can't be dogmatic, that's not really her name, but she is like the wife of King Ahab who seduced ancient Israel to worshiping false gods and committing sexual immorality. Because never forget this. The religions of the world are pregnant with sexual immorality. And when you worship false gods, you become like them. But there's something very interesting here. Thyatira was a city where people belonged to guilds. What do I mean by that? Well, they had guilds in the Middle Ages. A guild is a way of protecting your money and income. You've got to be a member of the guild in order to practice this trade. It's not unlike what we have in America today. You have to have a license to do certain things. 
And if you don't participate in the guild, you can't earn a living. The trouble was in Thyatira, they worshipped demon gods. Remember this, all of the gods of the nations are fake gods, but they're backed up by demon spirits. Demon spirits are real. Demon spirits love power. Demon spirits love to be worshipped. And so in Thyatira, they engineered that people in the guild would go to banquets. And in those pagan banquets, just as it was true of Canaan of old before they were conquered in the days of Joshua, to be involved in the worship of pagan gods was to be given over to licentiousness and looseness, including sexual looseness and immorality. So at these guild gatherings in Thyatira, people were going to be getting drunk. People were going to be messing around. They were going to be doing all kinds of sexual perversions, sometimes out in the open. So what do you do? Here's a great question to ask. What do you do? If you've got to earn a living, if you've got to provide for your family, and you've got to be in a guild to do it, what do you do? What do you do? Think about it. It's not unlike what we see sometimes in many places in the world today. If you're going to be in some states, you're going to have to perform abortions. If you're a doctor, in some places. And what's your alternative? Your alternative is to no longer practice medicine in terms of obstetrician gynecology. I think of Dr. Tom. There are pressures on doctors today like we have not seen in a very long time, ever since January 22nd, uh, 1973, with Roe v. Wade. The pressure to kill babies is there. I'm not talking about something to save the life of a mother. I'm talking about, well, we've discovered that we're going to have a little girl and we want a little boy. China, which is now in such danger that they're loosening up on the one-child policy. I want to say something. Hear me. There is no profession in this world that doesn't come with the threat of moral compromise. I pray regularly. I did this morning with Sandy for Julia Letlow. Julia Letlow's husband died of COVID after being elected as the congressman in my district for Congress, for U.S. Congress. And Julia, his wife, his widow, with two little children, Jeremiah and Jacqueline, is now a congresswoman representing our congressional district. Why do I pray for her? Because I'm going to tell you this. Julia Letlow faces temptations every single day to sell her soul. And if you're very astute about your own life and you think about the years of your life and growing up, you're threatened again and again and again with the issue. How far will I go? You got to earn a living. What am I going to do? Well, the people in Thyatira faced those issues. Could they be a member of the guild? I believe the answer of the Lord Jesus 
is yes. Could they arrange to miss the big party? Yes. What was the trouble with that woman Jezebel? The trouble with that woman Jezebel said, in effect, Go ahead! Go ahead! Go ahead and get drunk! You want to be able to reach the people around you after all. Go ahead! Get drunk! Go ahead! Eat that food that's sacrificed to an idol. After all, an idol's nothing. And St. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, doesn't he? He says, an idol's nothing in the world. And he said, if you happen to eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol, it's no big deal. Unless the person tells you, oh, by the way, this fine ribeye, I bought from the local temple because it's discounted and it's been sacrificed to Aphrodite. Then you can't eat it. Because ignorance is okay. But if you know it's sacrificed to an idol, he says don't eat it. And part of it is a testimony. Why? Because somebody who may not have understanding sees you going and you're told at the dinner, oh, this has been sacrificed to Aphrodite, and you're eating it, they think they can begin to eat that and participate in idol worship. It's not the eating of a particular food that matters. It's eating it with the sense that you know that that is being a part of pagan worship. You cannot worship the Lord and worship demons. And the things that the Gentiles sacrifice to, says St. Paul, they sacrifice to demons. So you have to draw a line. You have to say, no, I can't go this way. No, I cannot do it. And if I lose my job, I lose my job. I had this interesting story. I told my children that the day I was born, uh, the baby was swapped. And the guy I was swapped with later went to be a U.S. congressman. He was born on May 16, 1947 in the hospital at Bennisville. And Mama, who had taught at Vanderbilt obstetrical nursing, had enough sense about her just having had a baby a little bit ago to tell the nurse, you brought me the wrong baby. <laughs> well, the man went on and he became a lawyer in, in the town I was born in, Bennettsville, South Carolina, and he was elected to Congress in the Reagan landslide of 1980. You know what? He wasn't reelected after that. He served one term. He served two years. But you know, what does that tell me? That tells me that he probably was a good man. That tells me that he probably was a godly man. That tells me that he probably was a man of integrity who said, no, I can't do that. So dear ones, think about it today. And I'll continue this, God willing, next week. And I plan to spend the night here uh, next Saturday night. Uh, so if you're interested in eating with me or something, let me know. But dear ones, think about it as we think for next week. Think about it. The line in the sand. Everything in life is going to involve a line, a line in the sand. Teaching school. Being involved in politics. Wow. Wow. I remember 
my favorite professor from Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, Dr. David Moorfield, who had a PhD from Duke. He had been a chaplain during the Korean War. And he told us this story. He said, one day, the cook came up to him and said, Chaplain, I am so glad that I am not over there firing those guns and the artillery. And Dr. Moorfield said to him, if you didn't feed them, they couldn't do it. What was Dr. Moorfield saying? He wasn't saying it was wrong to shoot guns in war. He was simply saying this, there is no place on this planet that you don't have to deal with your conscience and make decisions about what you're going to do. Will I do it? Will I not do it? There's a line in the sand. Every Christian sooner or later has got to draw that line and say, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, I respectfully decline to obey this order, whether it's in a hospital or in a school or in the military. The Uniform Code of Military Justice tells us that you never park your conscience as at the door when you become part of the U.S. military in the wake of the Nuremberg trials. So how is it with you today? Have you got a defiled conscience today? Is there something on your heart that you're troubled about that happened in the past? Something you did long ago when you failed to draw the line in the sand and you compromised and you got yourself in a mess? You know what happens? Because I was a police chaplain in Kansas at one time. What happens is officers will sometimes entrap you into going along with something so that they've got the goods on you. And then if you ever cross them, they're going to use it and say, hey, well, Bob, you know, uh, you know, we, you, you, we protected you. You need to protect us. That's what happens with compromise. One compromise will lead you to another. What do you do now? Why don't you just right where you are, pray with me as we close our eyes. Lord, that terrible thing that I agreed to years ago that has been eating at me all these years, I ask you now, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you would forgive me. And I beg you in Jesus' name, show me how to get out from under this defiling memory and obligation I still find myself in today. And Lord, may I be like Esther of old, who said to her uncle Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. Would you take us right where we are, each of us, Lord? And will you grant to us a full surrender of everything in our whole lives, hurts, sins, sins we've done, sins that have been done against us, and when you enable us by your sovereign and free grace to lay it at the foot of the cross and never to pick it up again and to walk out of this church today with a load off our shoulders. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen.